American School Counselor Association, this is I Hear You Say, a podcast for school counselors and other leaders in education. I'm Jen Walsh, Director of Education and Training here at ASCA. Comprehensive school counseling programs based on the ASCA national model ensure equitable access to a rigorous education and promote and enhance the learning process for all students. Many of our students come from disadvantaged backgrounds, and part of our job is to level the playing field for these students through instilling the knowledge, attitude, and skills needed to overcome and succeed. Today, we're talking to Jeffrey Canada, one of the keynote speakers at the 2019 ASCA Annual Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. Jeffrey Canada grew up in the South Bronx in a poor, sometimes violent neighborhood. Despite his troubled surrounds, he was able to succeed academically, receiving a bachelor's degree from Bowdoin College and a master's in education from the Harvard School of Education. After graduating from Harvard, Canada decided to work to help children who, like himself, were disadvantaged by their lives in poor and battled neighborhoods. In his 20-plus years with the Harlem Children's Zone, Canada has become nationally recognized for his pioneering work helping children and families in Harlem and as a passionate advocate for education reform. Drawing upon his own childhood experiences and those of the Harlem Children's Zone, he wrote, Fist, Stick, Knife, Gun, A Personal History of Violence in America, and Reaching Up for Manhood, Transforming the Lives of Boys in America. Welcome, Jeffrey, and thank you so much for joining us today. Your story is so inspiring. I hear you say that your childhood was one in which violence stalked every street corner. Can you talk about how community violence impacted yours and your peers' educational experience and ability to succeed? Well, one of the first things that I think about in working in communities is what's the level of violence that children are experiencing on a daily basis. Uh, And that comes from my own experience. You know, in the South Bronx in the late 50s and the early 60s was a very violent place for children. Uh, We didn't have the gun violence that you find today in schools, Uh, but we had uh, interpersonal violence, fighting, sticks, uh, knives. uh, That was a daily part of our life. We thought about it uh, on our way to school. We thought about it coming home from school. We thought about it when we went outside to play with our peers. There were always fights. You were expected to learn how to fight. We spent so much of our life with anxiety and fear. And it wasn't just fear of being hurt. It was fear of looking weak, fear of looking like you didn't belong to the group. And it was many, many years later that I realized this stress, this anxiety, this fear that was punctuated with episodes of very intense violence. So there was a lot of fear and then you would be in a fight or someone else would be in a fight and the yelling and the screaming and the sense of chaos uh, left many of us scarred for life. It wasn't until they began to to coin the term post-traumatic stress syndrome that I began to think about what it was like growing up in these communities where kids are constantly assaulted and damaged by violence. And I realized, uh, you know, when you're on the battlefield, you're under extreme stress, but you're hoping to get back home 
you're hoping to get off the battlefield. What is it like for kids who the battlefield is home? It is the streets. It is when you're playing. There is no getting off. It's part of the school. And it, it is very much part of the school. And so one of the things that I became convinced of is that we have to take this violence issue seriously, not just the physical violence. And people often think about guns and knives and fighting, and I care about that. But I also care about the verbal abuse, the teasing, the picking on, the insulting, the denigrating uh, that goes on with young people all the time and often below the radar screen of adults. Often adults are, are willfully ignorant about the kind of uh, what I call low-level violence, which is happening all around them, and particularly in schools. Uh, and it's someone's, it has to be our job to really send that message that, no, we're not going to allow that. That's not the culture we have here. Even uh, the small stuff that you think is no big deal, calling someone stupid or you're a jerk or using a foul language, is something that we're going to oppose. Uh, what I found is if you correct for the little stuff, it stops the big stuff from ever happening. And unfortunately, many times we're not correcting for the big stuff or for the little stuff with kids. Uh, and that's a problem. How were you able to overcome these obstacles and become so accomplished? Well, you know, what I tell folk is that I've been in this field for so long, there's been a lot of trial and error. Uh, a lot of things I tried to do did not work. And slowly I began to uh, sort of begin to figure out what was working uh, and what wasn't. Uh, I think that there are a couple of things that I have said to folk. Uh, number one, I've always believed deep in my heart that the problem wasn't with the children. Even when you look at a kid and they're sullen and they're angry and they're hostile uh, and they, they curse and use bad language. And I realized that kid wasn't born that way. He didn't get that way because he's the bad seed, that there are things in that kid's life that led him to this point. And our job is to try and figure out how we get that kid from where they are to a new place. So this sense of holding high expectations for young people, meeting kids where they're at, knowing that we're going into communities where kids are really troubled and often feel abandoned and picked on and abused and angry. That, I mean, we, we chose to go into this community. We have to expect that, but we don't have to accept it. Our job is to help those kids get to a new place. Uh, and I just think my belief that when kids fail, it's, it's our fault uh, has kept me constantly thinking about uh, what are we missing? What do we need to do to get better? How do we get better? That's what I think has allowed me to create the zone is that constant questioning, what can I do to help those kids who aren't doing well, even with all I'm trying to do for them, we're still failing certain kids and we've got to think about how we help those kids. from Jeffrey in a minute. But first, did you know that the 2019 ASCA annual conference taking place in Boston, Massachusetts from June 29th to July 2nd is a place where you can discover companies that can help you find the products and services you need to run a top-notch school counseling program? Did you know that you can earn CEUs, contact hours, and graduate credit for attending the ASCA annual conference? The conference offers these perks and so much more. 
Can't make it to the ASCA annual conference in Boston? Register for the virtual conference instead. The virtual conference includes live access to four days worth of programming, all three general sessions, including Jeffrey's, as well as one breakout session in each time slot. Virtual conference registration opens this spring. We do hope to see you in Boston this year or in Seattle in 2020 or virtually. Find out more information about the ASCA conference on the ASCA conference website, askaconferences.org. Jeffrey, I hear you say that the Harlem Children's Zone is driven by the belief that the success of our children and the strength of the community go hand in hand. Yes, you know, for for me, uh, having grown up in the South Bronx in the 60s when that community was falling apart, I became convinced that if the adults allow a community to disintegrate around children, uh, it basically presents so many obstacles for their children uh, that it's almost unheard of for them to uh, be successful and almost impossible for them to reach their full potential. So I thought of community and connection with youth development, education, health, sports, arts, all of those kind of things uh, to allow children to really reach their full potential. What sort of issues did you see in the community growing up that children and families were facing? Well, you know, unfortunately, a lot of those things still exist today. Uh, but uh, when I was growing up, I watched our community deteriorate. I watched the housing stock deteriorate, the parks and the playgrounds. I watched our community become overrun with drugs and crime. And more importantly, young people began to adopt a culture which reflected a place where children were basically abandoned. They were not caring adults to guide us and lead us and instruct us and correct us. And that led to a series of beliefs that we had as young people that were really destructive. We believed in playing hard and drinking hard and fighting hard and smoking hard. We thought all of that stuff was normal. Uh, and indeed, it was all very destructive to us. And when you fast forward 30 years when I'm coming to Harlem in the 80s, and I see the same set of behaviors in young people, the same set of beliefs, the same community conditions where uh, it looks like the communities are abandoned and children define success by leaving their community. He was able to get out of Harlem. That's what I want to do. I want to figure out how I can get out of here. When people think of their community like that because the community is so toxic, you know a vast majority of the kids are not going to be able to actually be successful and get out me, you have to change that community so it's one that uh, is a safe place for young people. Mm -hmm. And one that they may want to stay in and make better rather than leave and not be considered the measurement of success. Oh, that is that is just so true uh, that in the end, we wanted kids to say, wow, you know what, my community uh, is changing, it's becoming better, and I want to be part of that development. And I actually think this is a great place to live and to grow up and to raise a family. That's what we wanted to have happen in Harlem. And by and large, that's happening. How was Harlem's Children's Zone able to achieve such unprecedented success with the cards so stacked against the population that you serve? Well, you know, this for us was a sort of group of people coming together. And people think, oh, well, you know what, you created the Harlem Children's Zone. No, I didn't. It started in 
with the community. It started with creating block association and tenant associations and fixing up the parks and trying to make sure the playgrounds worked and eliminating graffiti. But it also meant coming up with the plan uh, to changing how young people thought about education uh, here in the zone. And a lot of people have it confused because they know we have a charter school and they think we're a charter school organization. Uh, But that's absolutely incorrect. 80% of our children that we work with are in the traditional public schools in Harlem. We've worked with those uh, schools. Our uh, staff are in there as assistants and assistant teachers and support staff during the school day. We run the after-school programs after school. We're with the kids on the weekends and in the summertime. And what we really tried to do was create a culture first that had safety as its number one uh, priority. We wanted kids to feel safe when they're in school, coming to school, going home from school. But we also wanted to emphasize to young people that there's a series of behaviors, doing your homework, studying, working hard, preparing for exams, which if you did those things, it would lead you to a path uh, going to college. And we made a very simple declarative statement to our students. We expect all of them to go to college. And the reason we're so clear about that is that uh, when kids feel like you believe in them, you think they're smart, you're actually preparing them for a future of college, even if in the end they decide you know what, I've graduated high school. I actually don't want to go to college. I want to go into the military. I want to go join the police force or the fire department. That's fine. But you'll know that you actually had the opportunity to go to college if you so chose. The choice wasn't made when you were 12 or 14 or 17. So we think this idea that we can come together around our traditional public schools, we can support folks inside the classrooms, after school, weekends, holidays, summertime, and help those schools become successful with their children. That's something that I think those who know us well know that we do, but a lot of people are unaware that most of the kids that we have, we have over uh, 900 kids in college, uh, 80% of those kids went to our traditional public schools and not to our charter school. This is not a charter or a public school strategy. This is how do we just create great opportunities for children in the schools they're in. So I, I want to talk about the core principles of the Harlem Children's Zone. And the first one is really working in a designated area in a community. And this is all about place and place-based efforts. And I think there's a lot of work right now on place-based where uh, folks are thinking and looking at the data and realizing in some places young people really are struggling. And we had a defined area that that involved 13,000 kids. That was our place and our target that we were focusing on. The second thing is really we created a pipeline. Here is the biggest challenge I think folks trying to replicate our work deal with. People keep trying to figure out where's the magic bullet? What age Uh, If you intervene in a child, can you change their trajectory for the rest of their life? And in the communities that we care about, these communities that are struggling, uh, that have real high failure rates, that have gangs and drugs as part of the fabric of those communities, we think you have to start at birth 
and stay with those kids through elementary, through middle, through high school, and through college. Actually stay with them and help those kids graduate from college. We call that our pipeline. That to us is one of the essentials of our work. The third issue for us is scale. This is about touching so many kids that you can actually change the culture uh, in a neighborhood. You're the only school that uh, has this set of high expectations. Uh, then your kids are considered to be sort of outside the norm. We're trying to change what the norm is in a community so all the kids in that community are thinking about going to college. Uh, and so that means you have to target what we would consider to be, you know, a, a group of kids that are so significant that their impact on other kids begins to change that uh, culture. And for that, that's about 80% of the kids in the neighborhood. We really believe very strongly in evaluation and data that in the end, uh, you have to know what's working and what's not. The only way you can know that is by collecting the data uh, and having an evaluation structure, but not evaluation just for evaluation's sake. You know, we do a lot of testing in this country and a lot of it is just wasted time and energy. This is really trying to figure out what we need to do as educators, as youth development folks to help our kids master a set of skills that they need to know. And that looks very different depending on the age you're at. If you're four, that's one thing. If you're nine, it's something different. And if you're 15, it's something else. The last thing I really want to talk about is accountability and how do we hold ourselves accountable. That in the end, I believe that the adults have to take responsibility, have to be very clear about what our goals, what our outcomes are, and that we have to hold ourselves accountable to make sure that we accomplish those goals and outcomes. I know a lot of people care about this work and want to be involved in working in disadvantaged communities, but some folks just don't have the skill set to be able to actually deliver the value that we want children to have. And so we think this issue of accountability is absolutely critical, and we are constantly holding ourselves accountable. We feel like we're pretty good, but we think we're only about 75% as effective as we could be, and we've got to improve, we've got to get better. And we've got to know those areas that we feel like we're not doing a great job in and make sure that we improve in those areas. So those are the core principles that uh, I like to talk about when it comes to the zone. So given your knowledge and experience with educating young disadvantaged youth, do you have any quick tips that school counselors can use to best support these students who come from similar backgrounds as the youth that you work with? Yeah, the, the, you know, the first thing that I want folks to understand uh, in working with young people is that there's often reasons they don't trust us. They, uh, often reasons they don't want to share with us, they don't want to tell us the truth. And I, I found this out when I was in the ninth grade, one of my good friends was beaten up by a, a group of kids who were the toughest kids in the school. And we went to the principal for help. And the principal heard our issues, saw this other kid had been really beaten up and was bloody and whatever. And we asked him to promise us that he wouldn't tell the kids that we told. And while we were sitting in that office, they brought those kids down and into the principal's office. So they walked right past us. Now, guess what the lesson was I learned? Never again trust them. 
And there are so many kids who have similar stories where uh, they've trusted someone and they've been let down that I often start my sessions by telling kids that I know there are reasons you have for not believing I'm here to help you. I'm not going to believe you. I'm not going to support you. And I want to be straight with you. Everything you tell me, I may not believe, but it's not going to be because I've reached any conclusion about who you are as a person. Uh, I think that this sort of being straight with kids, being actually honest with them and saying to them, you know what, there's some things I can do and some things I can't do, but my job is to really help you, uh, that that sets to me the tone for uh, talking. I find that we want kids to talk as if they trust us, but we've given them no reason to trust us. And often I'll tell kids incidents from my childhood that helped me reach a certain point. Uh, When I was playing football, there were a group of guys who believed that you should throw kids uh, out of the showers when they were naked to, to embarrass them. It was a rite of passage and how terrified I was. And then the kids are always like, oh, what happened, Mr. Canada? What happened to you? And then I, I used that as an opportunity to talk about, A, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. The bullying was going on. The adults obviously knew this had been going on for years. There was no one to talk to. And telling a story like that, kids actually start thinking often, you know, this guy might understand what I'm up against as a person. So part of this is nothing inappropriate, but certainly letting kids know that, you know what, uh, it's tough being a kid. Uh, It's tough going through what you're going through. Uh, And I have some experience that helps me uh, understand why maybe you're not going to be able to trust me right off the bat telling me what's really going on in your life. Right. Making yourself relatable. I think that is true. And it has to be, you know what, the the issue is it has to be authentic, right? And that gets tricky when you're working across races, sometimes across sectors, across ethnic groups. Uh, How is it that, you know, you can get this person to relate? And often it's by, uh, I think, again, being honest. And I started my career working with white students up in Boston. And, uh, you know, a lot of them had strong racial feelings uh, back in the uh, 70s. And I would just confront that right off the bat. Uh, I'm sure in your community, they say a lot of things about people like me. You've probably heard stuff about people like me. And I need to know, you You know, you have any questions for me? I'm, I'm happy to answer them because I'm here to help you. And I realize this big issue is staring us, staring us right in the face. Uh, and if we don't deal with it, there's no way that you're going to be able to trust me and tell me anything. And kids often appreciate just that straight honesty. Yep, I recognize that that's there. And no, I don't trust you. And, you know, I believe I have reasons. And so then I can start, what are the reasons? Begin to talk to me about that and try to build some sort of relationship that's based on, I think, an understanding of who we both are as human beings and not on past prejudices that kids bring and I bring into any interaction around counseling kids. And now for what gives you hope. I'll tell you what gives me hope is that I have seen uh, a group of young people in this country really take this issue of what it means to be an American to the next level. I mean, people can point to the kids at Parkland and what they did around gun violence, but I see it on lots of local levels. I see young people who want to 
make their communities a better place, uh, who are prepared to take a stand against uh, the issue of violence or the issue of drugs. I've seen a lot of folks around the Me Too issue begin to question their own set of beliefs. And, you know, this gives me hope. I see my generation has created a lot of the challenges the country is facing right now, whether it's the environment or the racial challenges or the challenges around the treatment of women or the treatment of gays. Uh, my generation, I'm in my late 60s, my generation actually lived through and helped create a lot of those conditions which still exist today. Uh, and I see this new generation as making real strides to tackling these issues and dealing with them in a much healthier way. I see it in the relationships, I see it in dating patterns, I see how kids describe themselves. You know, a lot of kids, you were either forced, when I was a kid, you were either black or white or Latino, there was no gray, there was nothing in between. Now kids can define themselves, this is who I am, this is who my family is. And all of these I take as signs that we're moving in the right direction. And those of us who are there to support and educate these young people, we have to you know, raise our game up and make sure that we're giving these kids all the foundation support we can so that they can take over the leadership role uh, as they move from uh, adolescence uh, into adulthood. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jeffrey, and we can't wait to hear from you again in Boston this summer. This has been I Hear You Say from the American School Counselor Association. Thanks so much for listening today.